Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I'd also like to welcome you to Angler's Paradise, a purpose-built luxury course fishing complex at Halwell in Devon, designed and built by Zig Gregoreg. As they say, the clue is in the name. What then was the inspiration behind setting up a luxury commercial mixed course fishery? I used to live in London and my attitude to life was very, very, how shall I say, enjoy to the full. And I used to follow one of Oscar Wilde's quotations, the best way to overcome temptation is to give in to it, which is all right when you're still single. Um, but I met lovely Rose, I wanted to get married. I had too many temptations in London, uh, so the other way to do it is run away, and that's what happened. I decided to run away to Devon or run away from London. It took me two years finding a place, because originally... I wanted either lake or river, that was my reward for whatever, and I thought I would be able to retire, take it easy. It's never like that, because after we got married, uh, we had three lovely daughters, and that's when you work your what you call it off, good and proper. Originally, we did not come here to do Angler's Paradise as such. I was still selling insurance with CICA, and I thought I'd go into fish farming. As usual, for whatever reason, everything I do has got to be different, and I thought, right, Nobody's doing ornamentals. I went into golden tench, koi, golden rod, etc. Uh, we were successful in doing that. We met somebody, a good friend of mine, called Paul Bride. He's got a PhD in fish farming. He's written a book. We actually uh, used maturity grounds, stripped the fish, and did all sorts of things. Um, unfortunate, Pure Paul was exact opposite to me. I'm very, very lucky, and he was very, very unlucky. Buffalo, everything he did went wrong, and for whatever reason, it ended up my fish farming was my most successful failure. It gave me the knowledge, gave me the fish, and helped me set up Angler's Paradise. That, we came here in May 77. Angler's Paradise did not open until May 85, a good many years later. It turned out that insurance, although I was successful, I began to hate it. People were rude to me. Lots of Anglo-Saxon words and such like. And originally we thought, what we will do, we just have a couple of villas. We only had one lake to start off with. Angler's Paradise, actually, my wife chose the name, which is quite apt, actually. And it was a runaway success. Uh, one of the things I did, knowing nothing about holiday business, I sort of said, what would I like if I went fishing? And what would I like in the villas, etc.? So we, from the word go, wanted to make it top end of the market. At that particular time, if you went trout, salmon fishing, yes, you got the luxury. Whereas the coarse fishermen got the dregs. We put a stop to it. In 85, microwaves were the in thing. You know, it used to cost something like seven, eight hundred pounds. Every villa had a microwave. So we really went out of our way. Little things, I remember the first customer arrived and they were still making the beds because, you know, it wasn't quite ready. And I offered them a glass because I make my own wine, a thousand gallons at least every year. And I offered them a glass. Oh, this is lovely, they said. And I thought, oh, what the hell? I gave them the craft. And that's how it says in our brochure, you cannot have your key unless you have a drink with Ziggy. And it went from there. I was the first one to introduce ornamental fish. I remember a good friend of mine, Peter Moen. I sort of asked his advice, um, listened to some of it, but then went ahead and did my own thing saying to me, oh, the fishermen are very conservative lot, they will not want to catch ornamentals, etc. I wish I could have patented that idea. Everybody's now copied me and they've got 
golden tench, golden rod, orf, etc. Not to the same extent as we have, uh, but we are the first ones. We did design a fishing, because carp, when we started with the infish, they still are. But there's other fishermen. I built a lake shaped like a tench, something completely different. Nothing but golden tench and golden orf, maybe some blue orf. We've got some beginner's carp play, where you're guaranteed to catch most of them, plus or minus five pounds, a few upper doubles. But you've got sport, you catch the main car plate of 120s in there. Good Lord. You go in there, you can blank, but when you catch... Well, when we go round today, you'll find out what's been happening. But regularly, people are catching cats to upper 40s. They go up there to over 60. Um, so the specimen car plate, koi lake... Oh, it's fantastic. And every year I used to add lakes, add lakes. We've now got in excess of 30 lakes. And it's... I have great joy. I love fishing. To me, it's escapism. It's communion with nature... You just relax, you forget your troubles, you forget your woes. And it doesn't make any difference as long as you're fishing, whether you're fishing for big fish, game fish. I just love it, whether it's sea fish. You just sit down in my boat, I swim, relax, have a beer in hand, have a drink, and all of a sudden, hey, it happens. And if it doesn't, that is fishing. Sometimes you catch, sometimes you don't. So was the site totally devoid of water when you bought it, or did it have some existing lakes in some form or other? When I came here, there was no water, no fish. The lake was overgrown forest, that's the main carp lake. The boathouse was just what was left of it. We cleared it. Uh, the trees that were growing in it, I hate waste, I made it into my African safari bar. And we stocked it originally with trout, because I wanted this for my own. Carp, and some of the mummies and daddies are my upper 30s, nudging 40s. And... I put in some golden tench, golden orf, etc. And then that's how it came along. This is the stuff when I was doing, when we were doing the fish farm with the surplus fish. So the first year there was only one lake. We then did a little ornamental lake, which was Pixie Lake, uh, where we had small fish, etc. And then every year I used to do two or three lakes. And does what we see here today bear any sort of resemblance at all to whatever plan you must have had in your head back then? Or is it still evolving? Both. Uh, originally when I started, I said, right, 10-year plan or 15-year plan, we'll have 15 villas, swimming pool, etc. Within about five, six years, at about 20-odd villas, swimming pool. It was a runaway success. I think it's giving the angler what they wanted. We were the first ones, really, as far as your average fisherman could have a luxury villa designer fishing, loads of lakes all in the same place, looked after. There's nothing worse when you go fishing and you can't get in on a lake. So we didn't do any day tickets. That happened later on. Angler's Paradise is, and always was and will be, reserved for the people staying here. We've got 12 lakes on the premises, and it's just for the anglers or the people staying in the villas. But we've got over 30 lakes altogether because there's anglers, Shangri-La, we do match fishing, anglers, El Dorado, where we've got day tickets, anglers, Nirvana, we've got day tickets. And we've got, we've followed the same principle there, so you can catch big fish, uh, specimen cats, specimen carp. You've got a few lakes which are nice and easy. So it's something for everybody. That's one of the reasons we've been so successful and also we've reinvested. So any profit always went back into business, back into business. Remember, we started off with one lake and just five villas. We've got 38 villas now. And it looks like we're about 250 acres. We only had about 40 when we started. 
Can you give us a brief overview of the surface areas and depths of the lakes you've created? The original lake, there was a Victorian lake, uh, that's the deepest, that's getting on for 15, 20 foot in the deepest with the monkeys. All the rest, with the monkeys, they're all drainable, is plus or minus 10 foot. The rest of it is plus or minus 4 to 5 foot. That is the optimum depth for sunshine, because at the end of the day, what I try and do is encourage the fertility of the lakes. Uh, we used to put in calcified seaweed. Uh, we used to keep animals a bit of cow dung. A little bit is good because it's not only makes the flowers grow, but makes the fish grow indirectly, of course, because it increases all the water, shrimps, uh, all the other little bits and pieces that the fish can feed on, and it helps. It's an ongoing cycle. In nature, everything helps each other. You, you upset the cycle, or you try and do too much with one bit of the cycle, uh, you can create problems. And the surface area size range runs from what to what? The smallest you're talking about half an acre. Uh, most of them are in excess of an acre. Most of them are plus or minus two to three. The biggest one is about five and a half. That's the main lake. So how is the water requirement of these lakes met? Spring fed. There's lots of springs around here. And also some of them, there's little streams running into it. Since we've been here, thank God, we've never had a problem. We've had droughts, not very many, and the level has gone down. But because we don't stock too many fish, because they're born and bred up there, we've never had a problem either with diseases or with drought. Obviously, you do lose fish. This, you know, this natural progression. But never the whole lot at a time. As I understand the layout here, the complex is actually spread across two different water catchments. So presumably, if one did happen to present problems, you would still have the other to fall back on in an emergency. Yeah, this is the other thing. You can't take insurance on fish. People used to pretend they do, but what they covered you for, they charge a fortune, and there are too many escape clauses. So what I did, I kept buying land all over the place. So at the moment, I've got two or three catchment areas. Angler's Paradise and Angler's Shangri-La actually on the same sort of watercourse, the Canon React. But Nirvana is completely separate. And that's why I've introduced different species of fish, etc. So if something happened on one, the watercourse does not affect there. And El Dorado, once again, is completely separate. So that is partly my insurance. Actually, El Dorado is quite interesting. I didn't realize when I bought it. But that one feeds both the Tamar and the Torridge. So I could say to be the source of life for both rivers. And what we have done there, I'm utilizing some of my fish farming skills by blending different carp from different places to get together so we produce a new breed. One of the things I avoid and I haven't done buying in fish because although my fish are right and the fish I buy in are right, they could be carriers of different things, different diseases, different bits and pieces. And it's exactly the same if you talk about the missionaries when they went to Hawaii, etc. Uh, your common uh, cold flu decimated population because they, they had no resistance to it. They got their own back actually because I think they gave us syphilis and some things like that. Have you noticed any variation in, say, reproduction or even growth rates between lakes over the different catchments due to differences perhaps in water chemistry? That you can encourage it because you'll find if you stock them too, uh, too heavily, it means the fish become stunted. If you supplementary feed them, or anglers put up there, so you can grow. Same as if you're growing flowers or vegetables you want to win the show, you've got to feed it with organic matter, with things like that. With fish, you do the same, but you've got to be very, very careful. If you use 
too much manure, all of a sudden you can deoxygenate the water by producing too many wrong sort of of things and the fish will die. It's a very, very dangerous balancing act, provided you are careful you should be okay. But it's the same as everything else. Same as drinking. One minute you're okay and you're all merry, then two drinks later you're on the floor, out. What about the aquatic and bankside vegetation after the excavations were complete? Was it allowed to develop naturally, or did you give that a helping hand too? Everything needs a helping hand. This is where a lot of people, and this is where, after I started it, people tried to copy me, but they were doing shortcuts. I originally did this because I wanted to be the best, as opposed to just to make money. You have to make money in order to succeed, in order to do the things. But that was my main motivation. And what you do on building a lake, or what you spend, you should also spend on plants as much as you spend on fish. And what I did as part of the fish farm, I swapped a lot of my fish for different plants, rare lilies, all different sort of uh, marginals, etc. So when you go around them, it looks so natural. But the oldest one, really, was in 80, 70, 79 I stopped the main lake, and the rest was since 85. But they looked like they'd been there for 100 years. That's because you stock and once again, that creates a rod for your own back. Because some of the plants uh, can overtake. Then you've got to take them out. It's like your bulrushes went in one of the places. That's got to be taken out. Water lilies are good, but if you have too many. But that's not too bad, because there is a market for those. Then you've got Eludia crisper. That's your little uh, weed, Canadian pond weed and such like. But the best one is crisper, because that's the one. But there's a market for that, for your... Um, little tanks and people come along and collect it. But if you have too many, it can once again completely fill the lake. The fish can't move. But a little bit in places is good because you get all the Daphne, all the other stuff feeding in there. The fish can feed that for bright cover, prizes. It's having a balance. And this is where it's always a fighting thing. You have a garden, you want it to look pretty, you have to work at it, get rid of the weeds. And up to a certain extent, the same with the lake. Some plants are beneficial, they're all good. But if you have too many of one top, you've got to get out there and sort them out. It used to be a lot easier because we had chemicals, and right now some of them are all right. It's a pity. I never bothered with them. Now I've got so many lakes, I wish we had them. And it's all manual. You just get in there. Uh, when I first started, it was just me. couldn't afford to pay for anybody, and you get in there, and, you're, and it was cold, yes, and you'd pull out the weed and this. Uh, but it brings back happy memories. And are these all native plants? Or, as with the ornamental fish, have you introduced species from elsewhere in the world too? Well, as far as I know, there'll all be plants that have been in here for the last two, three, four hundred years. But I would say a lot of our plants now are like your rhododendrons, originally from the Himalayas. But they've been here for hundreds of years, brought in by Victorians and then the gentry. So what is an exotic species and what is now an established? Carp, for instance, originally came here in medieval times with the monks because they had to eat fish on Fridays so they used to pr- do their own and that's how we got carp but being here for a thousand years did that mean to say the indigenous are foreign what about the Anglo-Saxons and everything else look at as far as the uh, Great Britain is concerned so is it indigenous yes it is because it's part and parcel of our natural flora and fauna that's been established for hundreds of years you can't go any further than that so what is the total species count and mix you have here over all your 30-odd lakes? Oh, there's dozens of them. Uh, we concentrate. We've got the biggest golden tench and golden orphan in the country. Um, because of my fish farming, 
I noticed we got the recycling ponds and now and again we we used to sell a lot. Now I find that with all the lakes I just stock my own lakes, etc. We still sell fish. Um, but I found that as the fish grow on you get different uh, sort of colours, etc. So we've now bred some blue tench, white tench, all different varieties. Not many because they're not breeding through. But if somebody was to go into the specimen tench in North Lake, you'll catch fish. We think, bloody are these scoy or whatever. No, they're tench, but they're bluish or they're pinkish or they're whitish or they're whatever. Um, it's great, actually. I just love it. Um, hopefully, as time goes on, we'll have more and more different species. But it's predominantly carp, cats and tench. That's it. But I mean, all the fish, 99% of the fish you have belong to a separate family, like your tench, your rudd, and all of those are part of the carp family, really. The cats are something different. But they're called all different. So we've got crucians down at uh, Nirvana. We've got a silverfish lake where we've got different species of fish. We've got tench, a funny-coloured tench. Apparently these are green ones, sort of golden ones. We've got bream, we've got crucians. Probably the biggest gudgeon in the UK, about six, eight inches. And they're quite nice. Be worthwhile having a go for those. Chub, barbel, perch, so many different species. And what kind of sizes can these fish range up to? The carp are nudging 40s. Uh, the tench, we got them to over nine pounds, and that's golden ones, which is really fantastic. Cats are over 60. Cats were introduced about 10, 15 years ago got them on the original DVD. It took me three years to get planning permission from DEFRA and this, and they're only about six or eight inches. Now they're breeding, and I've got loads of them. I, I could say I'm the biggest producer of cats in this country and Golden Tench, or legally, because we don't get imported from abroad. They're produced here. And what we do, we have different types of fish at different years because we've drained the lakes every three or four years. Surplus stock is taken out. If there's too much weed, we take that out, big fish go back, and some of the small ones are put up for sale. That's how we go along. But the same as everything else, it's no accident that the fishing in the fishery is so good. You have to work on it, cutting the grass, getting rid of surplus weed. If there's too many fish, you've got to move them, because if you want big fish, you can't have too many, because otherwise uh, they'll sort of, you know, compete for food, get smaller and smaller, etc. Let's now talk a little bit about species mix. This obviously isn't the same across all the lakes. Some specialise in a particular species or even size, while others are more mixed. Give us an insight into the thinking and planning behind that. The main thing, we've got three lakes where carp are the dominant species. Carp are the dominant species. Any dominant species will be bullies. They'll bully the other fish. That's the trouble with tench. Tench are quite rare because if they're stocked with carp, they won't thrive so well. So I've got some lakes mainly where tench, it's only tench, and they do very well. I've got tench in all the other lakes, but they don't survive so well because the carp spawn earlier, grow bigger, and one of the things, although carp are not cannibals, all fish will feed on the eggs of others, all fish will eat the small fish, tadpoles, etc. Remember, ooh, going back many, many years ago, I think we had Rod Hutchinson when I first started in 85, and he caught a couple of carp and he... I remember looking at it and they started spitting out tadpoles. So they're opportunists. Whatever is swimming around, if there's a lot of that, they'll have it. And presumably you tend to keep the catfish away from certain of the smaller species, such as golden tench, which would make very easy pickings. Catfish, as far as Angler's Paradise is concerned, 
are Easy Access, Octopussy in Maine, and obviously the specimen, Catfish Lake. Originally, Adam spread round. And one's got to be very careful. You can't have too many because they'll eat the other fish. But I find once the carp get to good double figures, they're pretty safe. Fish over four or five pounds. I don't allow any dead baits or live baits or the cats. Occasionally, because we're registered fish farm, we mark certain fish when there's a surplus. And they can buy uh, the ones we've got. But that we haven't done them for the last year or two. Uh, but otherwise, it's halibut pellets, luncheon meat, and such like. But cats are omnivores, and they're also scavengers. They'll eat everything. Quite a few times we've had cats caught on chocolate malt boilies or strawberry sweet corn. They'll just go ahead, mop it up, there's a bit of food, and enjoy it. Obviously, they prefer live baits or whatever, but they'll take everything. You'll find, whether it's on the Ebro or elsewhere, you'll find biggest catches of cats are caught by putting in a lot of boilies. They get used to it, associate as food source, grow well on it, and you catch them. So they're opportunists. You could say like human beings, we'll eat anything. Do you have any sort of pre-planned stocking density for any or each of the different species and lakes? It depends. It's, uh, how shall I say, it's difficult to define. It's just like a good chef knows where you put a pinch of salt or a pinch of this or whatever. Some people got green fingers. I've got fishy fingers. Look. <laughs> and it just seems to work for me. I just look at the water. I look what's in there. And so far, thank God, I have been right. If I wanted to be a specimen lake, we don't put too many. And after a while, they will breed. So I drain the lakes. We take the small fish out, just put big fish. But we always have a few followers, because whatever happens, you'll lose fish. Um, either spawning, old age, occasionally anglers are very, very good. But one or two, by accident, they're not quite sure what's happening, have a fish out too long, or maybe whatever, and you lose them. So we've got their replacement, and I grow all my own fish. So while I say followers, these are the small fish which will grow into big ones, etc. So the stocking and quality of the fish in each of the lakes is controlled on a fairly regular basis. Yes, every three, four years, depending, some every five years, depending which lake, we try and drain them, sort out what's happening. Um, any fish that um, are not up to my standards are either stopped in a catfish lake, because I've got a specimen catfish lake, where they survive and thrive there, survival of the fittest, or they're sold, or um, you could call it ethnic cleansing, where we just want the best. So what about the quality and specimen proportions of your fish on a species-by-species basis? What sizes do you think you've got them stocked into, and in terms of actual catches, what are the maximum sizes that have come out so far? As I said before, the biggest golden tenshi, I would say, in the world, two over nine pounds. Similarly, golden off, two over that size. We're still, and I'm looking forward, it'll happen, where they'll take one year, two year, five years, I don't know, get the first golden tench and golden off officially stocked in lakes over 10 pounds. Not been done yet. They will do it, but tench are very, very slow growers. Um, so it'll take a while before that happens. But they're growing they're, if they're looked after, and they fight just as good as anything else. Carp, I haven't had my official 40. I've had them once or twice in netting, but not on rod and line. That is partly my fault. In order to have very, very big fish, you need just one or two in a lake. I cater for the average man, also the specimen hunter, and people come with families. But it's more somebody wants to have a family holiday, catch a few fish, can't go fishing, but they want a result. So if I just had one or two fish, everybody would be blanking more than anything else. And that means they'd leave unhappy, they wouldn't want to come back again. 
So what I've done, like take for example a main lake, you've got about 120s in it, that includes both carp, mostly carp, but you've also got uh, catfish, etc. Which means, yes, we've got big fish, yes, we've got fish over 30 pounds, but they don't grow that much bigger. If I only had one or two, they would grow a lot bigger. And you've also got a lake that's stocked primarily with koi carp. What's the thinking behind that? As I mentioned earlier on, I sat up ornamentals, breeding ornamentals. In those days, in the late 70s, early 70s, koi were the in thing. <coughs> I used to get them from Japan, and any koi was worth hundreds of pounds. They were more expensive then than they are now. And I started breeding them. We got the original koi from Japan, and we continued breeding them. And I thought... They look just as well, just as good. And actually, koi are the original wildies, because they were bred for colour, whereas the carp we have now were bred for food, really, especially in the continent. And they're the first designer food or packaged food for the housewives because they didn't want to take the scales. And I found some fish or carp coming, coming without scales. That's how leather carp were born. And fully scaled, etc. There's not so many scales to take off. So we're indirectly pleasing the housewife and then they used to breed the fish that used to grow the quickest so all the wild the carp are still fantastic fighting fish but the wild strain is gone you catch a koi of double figure or even high singles it'll fight just as good as a 20-30 pound carp I've had the pleasure of doing it and they're the original wildies that was that aspect plus they're pretty they look beautiful and I just like variety and plus I used to have them these are my own fish I used to breed them I found that because of imports, we couldn't compete. Because what people forget, you go to a, a garden centre elsewhere, it'll cost you £50, £100 or £500 for a koi. What they pay dealers is only a fraction. I used to originally sell them from here. At the moment, we still not fully get up to... I, I might consider selling fish from here, doing a small sort of aquatic trade, etc. We'll see. There's so many different... There's a limit to what I can do. We've got some very, very good staff. But once again, just looking after 250 acres, the lakes, keeping everything neat and tidy, the villas, there's 38 villas, we just run out of time. And then you've got the bar, we're doing food a couple of times a week. There's so many things to do, we just haven't got enough time to do everything. I believe that some of the koi in there are actually up to double figures. Yes, we've got them in upper doubles in the koi lake. I try and keep them separately. I try and not mix with the carp. You mix them with the carp, what then happens you get a koi, the carp genes are stronger, and you end up with just sort of few spotty carp. You know what I mean? They're not, they're neither koi, nor carp, and they're not as big because they take the wild genes as opposed to this. So you get the worst of both worlds. So keeping them separately, you got the koi, pure, carp pure. And how have anglers responded to targeting pretty-looking ornamental fish? They love it. And the first response, oh, bloody hell, what's this? Oh, I got them in a garden centre. I said, look, you look after the fish in the garden centre, look after the fish you catch. You're not catching them for food. I insist on barbless hooks. Release them gently, take a photograph, weigh them, if you, whatever, and they'll swim away. And they do much better in a natural environment because koi are kept in a garden pond, they can't grow. Then you have filtration system, which means you have a filtration system. You haven't got natural water. They haven't got all the natural goodness etc you've got to feed them etc so my lot are natural fish they've got all the natural food and the anglers baits give them some, some supplementary food now you mentioned earlier that you don't allow live baits or dead baits in any of the lakes so what other restrictions do you also have on both tackle and tactics 
common sense. Basically, I say anything that's likely to harm the fish and no good for the fish we don't use. So I was the first one, and that's going back in 85, to insist on barbless hooks. And I actually do go around on a regular basis, at least once or twice a week, where I get staff to do it, make sure that it's barbless hooks. We don't allow fixed leads. As long as they come off, because what happens, even with the best will in the world, line gets broken. If you've got natural plants, um, the fish can get tangled. If it's tangled, it becomes tethered. It'll then die. So you've got to try and avoid that if you can. Tiger nuts, peanuts, with bend old pulses, the tiger nuts, peanuts, if they're prepared properly, they're all right. But peanuts, and especially tiger nuts, you can boil them for a week, and they still feel the same. You know you've done it correctly. Most anglers do it correctly, but you regularly get one or two that don't. And I've lost fish. And upon looking at it, we found it was full of peanuts or tiger nuts. Rarely, but I want to make it never. So from that point of view, I'm sorry, I've banned pulses. That's tiger nuts, peanuts, etc. And the other thing with peanuts, it's annoying. People are selling them. They're not fit for human consumption because they can have all sort of different toxins. But they're selling them for bird life. They're selling for this. Well, the birds are going to die as well. And this is where it's um, a pity, because this stuff is sold for the fish, and it creates problems. All of that said then, what advice in terms of tackle and tactics would you give to anyone visiting Angler's Paradise for the first time? Just what you do normally. Um, if you're after car, do what you normally do. A maximum is two rods, get out the boily job, but at the same time try naturals, your worms, your maggots, the medusa ring. Everything works and everything fails on its day. Maggots, worms and natural, I think, are the best ones going. The only trouble is, every fish likes them. So instead of the big carp concentrating, all the little ones will come in. That's where boilies were born. I mean, if you go back originally, when they were going for carp before boilies were invented as such, they were using potatoes. Why? Because they were hard and small fish left them alone. The carp came along. Oh, well, that's some of that. And they ate them. And then they found, introducing boilies, more protein, more this. So parboiled potatoes are no longer being used. What about timing and seasonality? Yes, once again, you've got to. Different times of the year, it's better. And this is where watercraft comes in. You see fish moving. You try and work out what are they feeding on. In many cases, they're feeding on something natural. Uh, I mentioned tadpoles. Now they're going to be feeding on that. So you've got to try and see, like cats, all of a sudden, they've been uh, spawning lots of small fish moving around. They may be preoccupied. And then you've got to try and just sit and wait. And then the other thing you have to try and remember, we get out there fishing. Yeah, wonderful, we want to catch. But the fish may not be hungry. So sometimes, especially in wintertime, there may be one or two days they're not feeding at all. So it can be a waiting game. But this is watercraft, trying to find out where they are. You can see different movements. You can see the water ripples. Uh, there'll be different places, different times of the day. There'll be different places in different times of the year. So it's... Finding the hiding places, finding they'll always be somewhere underneath trees. If you're in a river, you'll find where there's a big rock, where there's an underlay, that's where fish will go into. After a while, you find these things. They'll be under bridges because they get some shelter, etc. It's be impossible to give you all examples. It's something which you learn. It's like an apprenticeship. And as you get older, hopefully you become wiser and remember some of those. And you forget some of them as well. Are you open all year round then? Yeah. Yeah. And how does it fish over the colder months? Obviously, it's better summertime, but I've had fish caught in winter. I've actually had now and again, it rarely freezes because we're further down south, but now and again it has done. People have made holes in the ice and caught tension, things like that. How do the cats and carp respond to the cold? 
not too bad. I thought they would. If you go back once again in the 70s, where carp really became the in thing and everybody went for them, oh, you can't catch winter carp. Now you catch them all year round. Cats are similar, but it goes back to what I said earlier. There will be two or three days when they're not feeding. They'll start feeding gravely for part of that day. So you may have to spend a week to keep them feeding that one day. Can I ask you a little bit more now about the complex itself? My understanding is that it's subdivided into a number of smaller complexes with different limitations placed on the fishing at each according to whether you're a resident or a day ticket holder. It is and it isn't because it just happened. I intend to live here for the rest of my life. And what happened, I used to go to auctions, etc. You have to remember, English is my third language. I'm just a poor little refugee. I've got ten nationalities. Well, well, well. But I'm made good. But you can remember me going up there and all of a sudden I'm just rubbing my forehead thinking, what the hell's happening? And next week, sold to that man over there. And that's what happened. So I ended up buying bits and pieces here, bits and pieces here. I think Shangri-La first, then we had El Dorado, then we had Nirvana, then this, then was half. But it sort of added up. And that's how it progressed because I found from the word go, I think I mentioned it earlier, in order to get the fish, uh, insurance you couldn't it's just to have as many complexes just in case something happened to one you'd have the fish in the other one especially if they're on a different water course or separate you couldn't continue fishing so that was part of it and then the other thing I just like having variety I liked um, having lots of fish I just love fishing I love the challenge and it just happened that way okay so taking them one at a time what is Angler's Paradise? Angler's Paradise is a paradise for anglers. It's something we want to make your dreams come true. We can come, your average angler, uh, especially in this country, can come with his family in luxury accommodation, fish at the same time. The family, they've got heated in the swimming pool. You can go to the seaside. There's lovely walks next to us. It's 300 acres of triple SSI, uh, hollow moor. It's one of the rarest where you can go up there and find all the red plants and everything else. Um, I've seen barn owls, you see them all the time. Um, it's one of the few places when you go around, you're virtually guaranteed to see kingfishers, which very few places have got that. So you can, you've got nature, you've got deer here, all sorts of uh, wonderful things. And you can catch fish. If you're after big fish, if you're after dream fish, you've got to be prepared because it wouldn't be dream fish if you caught them all the time. They've got to be something bigger. And this is where the challenge comes in. So you, you challenge yourself to get the biggest or a bigger one where you may not get it. I can guarantee every week we'll have 20s and 30s come out and cats to 40, 50 pounds. So Angler's Paradise then is a small portion of your overall total of lakes which are reserved solely for anglers who are resident at the complex. That's right. So here, as I said, you can fish uh, the few times you're allowed to fish because people come with their families. Sometimes people come with their mates, etc. But everybody's different. Some just want to catch. So we've got beginner scarp lake, float fishing lake, but they're catching all the time. They want to catch big fish. Okay, be prepared for big blanks, because big fish are more clever. There's not so many of them, so you've got to hang, it, hang in there a bit longer. And that's where you've got to try different techniques. And this is where I'm talking about watercraft. Uh, the SIG rig is so-called. I didn't invent it, but it was invented here. I think it was in 85 or 86. We had the messenger twins. Their father was a great big carp angler and they were not catching and he thought ah what happened if i have the bait suspended in midwater and that's how the zig rig or etc it's called 
because it was invented here by somebody called Messenger. What about Angler's Nirvana? Nirvana is four lakes, or five lakes altogether, where we're trying to put a mixture of different things. We've got a trout lake, once again, that's different, with four or five different species of trout, but also fly, catch and release only. We've also got golden tench being caught there on fly. We've also got some grass scarp being caught on fly. We've also got some golden off, blue off, etc. All these species can be caught on fly. That's what gives it fun. You don't have to just be trout. And this is catch and release. Uh, that's a challenge. You go around and get as many species as you can. We've then got Fat Boys Lake, where it's uh, the fish are, how shall I say, more round. They're kidding like me now. But that is more of a catching water. Most of the fish are plus or minus 10 pounds between 5 and 10. But there's quite a few 20s in there. Uh, but because there's lots of smaller fish, you've got to fight through to get to the big ones. Cracking carp is an amazing lake. That one's only got about 20, 30 fish. But I would say, I doubt if you'll catch one below a 20. The last five fish caught four different 30s and an upper 20. But mind you, they're spread over a couple of months. So most people go in there and actually blank. But you know, if you catch one, it's a big one. Then we've got a catfish lake with the average size is 40 pounds. Uh, when I drained some of the lakes, I took some of the best fish out, but since then they've grown on the other ones as well, all round about plus or minus 40 pounds, put them in there, and that's all there is. I'll have to drain that one before long. Uh, the reason I'm not draining those because they don't fill up as well as sort of waterfalls, watercourse, etc. takes a lot longer than the ones at Angler's Paradise. And then I've got a silverfish lake where I've got a mixture of all the other fish which I mentioned earlier. So that's Nirvana. El Dorado, there's four lakes there. Koi Lake, some Tench Lake, bit of a Cat Lake, bit of a Carp Lake. There, you can fish any one of those. You buy a ticket. Whereas in Nirvana, you've got a specific lake. You've got to stay in that lake. You can change afterwards, provided there's room and space. I allow up to 10 anglers in each of those lakes. More than that, no. Then you've got Shanghai where we do match fishing, where you hire the lake for the match. Right, got you. But what we haven't talked about yet in any great detail are the facilities on offer which are there to complement the fishing and not only for the anglers but possibly even more important still for the families. Things like swimming pool, laundry and bar. Well, part and parcel, this is what makes Anglers Paradise so fantastic, is the creature comfort. You want to have nice accommodation, we've done that. You've got your bathrooms, your showers, your toilets. Uh, for the kiddies there's a play area, little castle there cable way so they can provide the supervisor of course because it's always dodgy letting children disappear on their own really really enjoy themselves then you've got the swimming pool once again where you can have great fun and you know it's heated indoor so it's not suffering with the vagaries of weather i'm proud of what i've done with a swimming pool uh, because most swimming pools are sort of like doctor surgeries this that and the other i've put mosaics fish on the bottom you find this all sorts of uh, bits and pieces on shelves to make it look homely, look very, very nice. Uh, we've got a sauna in there. We've got a um, jacuzzi in there. So continually then there's a bar, famous African safari bar, fisherman's bar, the stories are told that that's open in the evenings. We've got a barbecue area. We do wine and dine, food a couple of times a week. And as time goes on, we'll do more and more. We've already had plans passed for bistro, tenpin bowling, all sorts of things in the present day and age. At the moment, that is on hold, mainly because it's going to cost a few million to build it, 
and nobody's prepared to lend me that money at the moment. But they will, and it will be done. And what about the tackle shop? From what I've seen, that's specifically geared up just to the type of fishing you do here. Bits and pieces, mainly boilies, baits, maggots, worms, etc. It's not everything, because you can't. Uh, but because most people bring their own stuff, but in case of emergencies, we've got bits and pieces for them there. Do you also allow night fishing? Yes, and night fishing in Angus Paradise, which I separately for that, and uh, we do night fishing at El Dorado and Nirvana. If you're doing a nighter, you must do a day. You can't just come and do a nighter. Is what you've ended up with here the dream you started off with? It's surpassed my dream, and I'm very, very lucky because I look at it and it gives me great pleasure, and I'm sort of very proud of what I've done. And it allows me to do, because I don't take a wage, my reward to myself is go all over the world, fishing oceans, jungles, rivers, lakes, and a few of the times very successfully. But I have to admit, being a fisherman, irrespective of how lucky you are, you have things called Blanco, and I've had just as many as the next man. So what about your vision for the future? To continue as we are, make sure Angler's Paradise is the best place in the world. I believe it is, but I have to work on it to make it that way and to go around breaking more world records. And when you say world records, you mean exactly that. For not only are you the first and only angler in the world to complete the three royal slams for all the billfish, all the tuna family, and all the listed shark species, but you're also a mere whisker away from completing it for a second time before anyone else has even had the chance to do it once. And we have a podcast interview you did with Graham Pullen on the site covering just that. Getting back to the subject at hand though, Angler's Paradise, I have to say that by any definition of the title, it is just that. The quality of the fishing here and the facilities are absolutely first class. Last year, for example, I went over to Spain to fish the River Ebro for a couple of days for cats and blanked. Here, it only took me a couple of hours to get my first cat. So to me, it's an incredible place and one which, despite being a sea angler, I can see myself returning to again in the near future.